This, this is the Second Second Story Podcast. Welcome back to the Second Story Podcast. I'm Max Spitz. Dating is dangerous. Meeting a new person, opening yourself up to them, and sharing intimate moments are all risky, both physically and emotionally. And modern online and app dating has only served to further complicate it. I have seen a great number of couples start on an app and grow into a loving, long-lasting relationship. However, the possibility of unhealthy or abusive relationships is unfortunately always present, regardless of whether the couple met online or in person. In this week's story, teller Scarlett O'Janson shares with us her cautionary tale of how she found herself in an abusive relationship and how she got out. Recorded live at Pub 626 in Chicago in December 2018, Second Story is proud to present Cubans, Sex, and Adderall. A month after my marriage ended, I got an account on an online dating site. Not the best idea. I needed to know. Up to this point, I had convinced myself that there was something hormonally wrong with me, when in reality I was just in denial about not being attracted to my husband of 11 years. I was nowhere near that amount of clarity when I decided to enter the Tinder jungle after just having been crowned single mom at 37. I went on four awkward, uneventful dates. The fifth one was different. Our schedules didn't match, so he proposed a Skype date. And since I do that with my family, I didn't find it weird. I found it flattering. I dressed up from the waist up, (laughs) and I sat in front of my iPad. After three hours, around 1 a.m., we hung up, and he immediately texted me that he liked me. He was from Cuba. I'm from Argentina. I loved his accent. He loved mine. He made me laugh, and he got my humor. He was older than me, but he seemed so youthful and energetic and wanted to shoot pictures of me and take me dancing. He wanted me, and he showed it. He actually couldn't get enough of me. Literally, like sex was exhausting. (laughs) I wondered why there was no refractory period, but I didn't ask. This new love affair was actually helping me heal from this stigma I had created for myself. I was not dead inside. My libido was working perfectly fine. Soon enough, he was sneaking in after my six-year-old went to sleep and left before he woke up. We did that for months. He would bring me wine and weed, and we would sit down and talk. Sometimes he'd cook something for me before he arrived and bring me a doggy bag. That gesture warmed my heart, maybe because I'm not from here, and I associate people cooking for me with home. I noticed he didn't sleep or eat much, and I asked why. He would distract me with stories from Cuba, or he'd start kissing me, and I'd forget. We transitioned quickly into coupledom. I couldn't believe he'd busy himself cleaning my kitchen while I read bedtime stories to my son. The first time I came out of the room and I saw him wearing that yellow, the, the yellow gloves and smiling at me, I was done. One night after a couple of drinks, he began to act erratically. I couldn't quite tell what was off. He started spinning about me going back to my ex. His ex-wife cheated on him, so I justified this unproportionate worry with his brokenness. I assured him that I wasn't going to go back to my ex, that I was falling for him. I said, I love you even too soon, but I did. He didn't really listen. He kept circling back to the same thing over and over. 
After a while, he magically turned off and fell asleep on his couch, emotionally exhausted. He's drunk, I said to myself. He'll be fine in the morning. One night, he texts. Hola, chula. What did you do today? I worked, picked up my son from school, then back to work. How was your day, I say. Who did you have lunch with? Funny, he asked. I had had lunch with my ex. We had some stuff to talk about about our son. It was not fun. It was all business. Who did you have lunch with? It took me a second to answer. I knew where this was going, but it caught me off guard. My ex, why do you ask? Just wondering. Are you guys getting back together? I already gave you this answer, I say. We have a kid together. Sometimes we'll have to meet. I thought it was understandable for him to feel a little insecure. I sincerely felt empathy for him and invented certainty that I could understand him, that I could help him, which was nothing that but my own pretentiousness about my emotional integrity that comes from years of therapy or growing up around a bunch of shrinks. You'll have to choose. It's him or me, he says. That seems excessive, I think. And I say, I can't choose. He's the father of my child. I will continue having a friendly relationship with him for my son's benefit. Okay, so you'll lose me, he says. I'm extremely tired. I have to wake up early for work. I love you, and I choose you, but I won't change the way I co-parent because it works for us. I'm going to turn off my phone now. And I do. Half an hour later, he rings my bell. We lock ourselves in my room. He starts interrogating escalating. His volume goes up and I get stern and he lowers it and he starts to come down to go right back up. We argue for more than an hour and a half and he finally comes down for good. Don't ask me how he turned it around, but we end up having makeup sex, which is a very convenient way to reset your partner's patience meter back to factory settings. <laughs> it was around Thanksgiving when we invited a couple of friends over for dinner. He seemed so excited to be playing house with me, and I didn't mind because my ex hated people. <laughs> the Cuban was happy to host, and I love that about him. He bought rum, and he cooked congri. After they left and my son went to sleep, I see him come back from the kitchen with a menacing look. He's walking towards me. He's holding my phone in his hand, and he's waving it, enraged. Are you going back to your ex? Otra vez? What are you talking about? I read your texts. What texts? He breaks his kitchen window with his fist. Time stops. His hands are bleeding. There's glass everywhere. I'm paralyzed. My eyes are fixed on his hands as if his safety is more important than mine or my son's. He calls you baby. Why the fuck does he call you baby? Because I asked him not to? And he's an asshole because it's a term of endearment? I don't know. Are you okay? All I can think about is please don't wake my son up. After the window incident, I tried to break it off with him. But he claimed to be addicted to Adderall and promised to quit and get treatment. He begged so hard for my forgiveness and I was so in love with him that I caved. We lasted a couple of months before he grabbed me a little too hard by the arms and I broke it off again. This time, he understood we were done and in an attempt to clear his conscience, I guess, he confessed to having my Apple ID, which he used to read all my texts, emails, and know of my location at all time through my phone's GPS. 
I went to the police to report him, and they sent me to court to get an order of protection. My first visit sent me home with some reading materials. I'm a victim of domestic abuse, go figure. I'm the victim, he's the batterer. It took me a minute to make sense of this. How could I have fallen for him? Why did I allow it? Why did it take me so long to realize? I'm not a battered woman. This sounds terrible, but the image that came to my mind was of this tabloid-type Argentine news channel interviewing an underprivileged woman with a baby on each hip about her experience living in a slum. I went to private Jewish school in Argentina. I grew up around a family of psychologists and psychiatrists. Wasn't I strategically groomed to know better? The batterer has a charismatic, charming personality that disguises a jealous, controlling, and manipulative nature, says the pamphlet. There is a drawing of an endless circle in where the victim always takes the batterer back. I see myself waking up my kid after the window incident, leaving quietly in the morning, trying to distract him from the wreck as we walked by it to get out of the house. The victim usually believes the batterer's promise that he will change, says the chart. The victim excuses the batterer's behavior. I believed the Adderall was making him into that monster. I believed he could change. I excused his behavior with friends and family many times. I thought I could handle it. March 16, 2016. It's the final court date. The bright white lit courtroom has two sides of seats and a little corridor leading to the bench. He was sitting on the left. I was on the right. He was wearing a suit. He looked nervous, sweaty. His eyes tried to find mine as if saying, please don't do this or take me back, I'm not sure. I had my folder filled with printouts of emails to help me prove that he tapped my phone. I was ready. He was sitting upright, listening intently as if paying attention mattered. The judge was a woman in her 40s. She did not look like a judge. She looked like a woman that could have her own cooking show and I'd watch it. She starts with me. While she takes a look at my paperwork, she asks me to show her any evidence I find incriminating. I have a confession he recorded and posted on YouTube. Your Honor, can I show you on my phone? She listens and watches and listens again. She lifts her head a couple of times to double check if she's understanding the English, the Spanish, and I translate for her. This moment took forever. The room was silent while she listened. I didn't need to look at your phone, Chula. I had your whole life on my computer. I knew all your passwords. I read all your emails. Anything on WhatsApp, all your conversations on Facebook. I became obsessed. She handed my papers back to me. Then she looked at him and said, is there anything you want to say to defend yourself? I'm not interested in her, Your Honor. I'm in a new relationship now, he says. Oh, really? What is her name? She says. What is her name? Yes, what is her name? Are we in a Judge Judy episode where the defendant is repeating the questions to gain some time to think of a response? He blurts out a name. The judge turns to her monitor and types. With a C? Seconds that feel like ages went by while we watched the judge surf the internet. She was determined to discover if he was making this woman up, and it felt like she was enjoying making him uncomfortable. It was genius. <laughs> she asked if the emails I provided were his. 
and he denied it. It was so obvious that he was lying, so obvious. I scanned the room and I noticed there were no more cases behind us, so it was just us, the judge, the advocate, a marshal, a court reporter, and a clerk, all women. I looked at these women's faces one by one and I felt them with me. They were so clearly condemning him. I felt the need to smile. A week ago, this last paragraph started with me telling you how I got the order of protection that day and I never heard from him again. Well, I got an email from him last week asking me if I have one of his paintings. I didn't respond. I had a conversation with my I had a conversation with my personal trainer about self-defense after I got that email. I wanted him to teach me how to attack. He says there is no way to guarantee I'll immobilize him and what if he retaliates? So that's shot. I'm Uma Thurman in my mind, of course. <laughs> I play this scene in my mind so many times. I see him, we lock eyes, we say a thousand things to each other in seconds and I feel the rage coming up and I let it build in my stomach and I start feeling my eyes tear up and as I make him believe I'm about to hug him, I hit him in the balls with all I got. I'm not gonna do it, obviously. That's where my education gets in the way. <laughs> the story used to have an ending where I talked about what I learned from all this, how I feel like I have PTSD from it, but now I kinda wanna turn the house lights on and make sure he's not in the room. This story was curated by Jess Kadish Hernandez, produced by Gracie Meyer, and directed by Max Spitz, with music and sound design by Elisa Rosenthal. The Second Story podcast is produced by Max Spitz. Second Story is located in the traditional homelands of the Council of the Three Fires, the Odawa, Ojibwe, and Potawatomi Nations. Our programming is made possible by the MacArthur Fund for Arts and Culture at the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, the Paul M. Angel Family Foundation, the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, Illinois Arts Council Agency, Innovation 80, the Lupo Family, Eric Rothstein and Gina Wamek, Athene Karras and Thomas Applegate, James Lupo, Jessica Wetmore, Jeffrey and Joan Goldwater, Katie and Peter Hauser, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Max Spitz, and this, this is the Second, Second Story Podcast.